The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio coming to you uh, live from the, sh- the shores of Lake Michigan in Douglas, Michigan. And my name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your, your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show at hashtag Big Beacon Radio. And... Uh, Today we've got a special guest uh, coming to us uh, from also from the Midwest. Uh, we've got uh, Jeff, Jeff Shelton, uh, host of the Engineering Commons podcast. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, Dave, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to appear on Big Beacon Radio. Well, and and uh, glad that you could join us. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna. This is maybe a little bit of an inside baseball kind of day. We're gonna talk about podcasting and the kind of thing that you do and that I do and, and what kind of effect it has on on the world. But uh, I guess we became aware of each other in, in connection with uh, the Engineering Commons and we were doing Big Beacon and, and Whole New Education and we bumped into each other and I ended up on your show and and I'm I'm really pleased to have you on, on ours today. But before we jump into the the podcast, you know, Jeff, you've been in industry, you've You've run your own business, uh, quarter twenty engineering. You went back to school and got an MBA and a PhD, or part-time faculty member at a at a little university in the middle of Indiana, and and you run a popular podcast for engineers. But let's uh, let's uh, go back to the log cabin and and you know, what were some of the early experiences in your life that led to this point in your career? Well. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't know that I wanted to be an engineer. I thought I wanted to be a writer. Um, and so my focus was kind of in that direction. But, but I'd grown up with a father who was a mechanical engineer. And so I was familiar with, uh, you know, he was the problem solver. And if there was something that broke in the house, he would, uh, at least before he turned it over to a repairman, he would try to uh, fix it. Uh, and so he had a wood shop, uh, sorry, wood shop downstairs and would build things. Uh, he'd uh, uh, work on the cars and take me out there and show me how to uh, uh, set the timing and uh, gap the points. And, and uh, So I grew up with that. I grew up with, he built Heath kits and eventually got into amateur radio. And so I got my amateur radio license at an early age. And so 
I didn't, of course, when you're young, you don't realize that other people have other experiences. I thought this was the experience that every young man had. Um, and so when I, I got to my senior year in high school, it was time to decide what college to go to. I was pretty sure I was going to go to college, but I didn't know which one. Uh, my friends were going to Purdue. And uh, uh, since I was growing up in Indiana, that seemed like a reasonable thing to do. It was a state school. And, sure. Uh, so I, I, since my friends were going to Purdue and they wanted to major in engineering, and I just I wasn't sure about the writing career, uh, I decided, well, I'll go. Let me go give this engineering thing a try and, and see how it works out. And uh, my first couple years as an undergrad were pretty rocky, uh, but I finally started to get the swing of it, and I found that I really liked the problem solving. Um, and so uh, it sort of led me into uh, to a path uh, in engineering. Well, it's, we share a fair amount of uh, of that history together. My dad, my dad uh, is uh, is retired now, but he's an engin- he was an engineer and and uh, in the automotive business mainly. And um, the amateur amateur, I, I I remember my HR10 Heath kit, uh, DX60 Heath kit, and the various kits that I built uh, um, along the way to my my amateur radio license at a young age. And it seems like, you know, people of a certain age got into engineering as, as gizmos like that. Uh, but it, it seems like uh, some of that's passed, passed us by that. I think people get into uh, computer science and, and, uh, and software through coding in a similar kind of way. But this, the, the uh, some of the, the, the working on machines and the, and the smelling of solder has 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 passed a generation by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and sort of interestingly, we'll we'll talk a little uh, later about uh, Chris Gamble because uh, he's involved in my my podcast path. Yeah. Uh, but he he runs a uh, program called Contextual Electronics, where uh, people are able to go online, and he works them, uh, uh, teaches them, trains them. Uh, he calls it an online apprenticeship. Uh, in electronics, and so he helps them learn how to design and, and build printed circuit boards. And uh, he says that a lot of his business comes from people that are from the software industry. They, they've been doing the software side, and they enjoy that, and they see the, the maker movement, and they see people building things, and they want to get involved with that. And so uh, uh, interesting, interestingly, a lot of his, his, uh, his clientele is coming from uh, from software from the soft side. That's interesting, and and yeah, I look forward to talking more about that. And I guess you know the you know one of the things that's interesting about your career, you've kind of gone your own path. You you have your own business now. You got a PhD at a at a time when most people were thinking about other things. So you've had this courage or 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 uh, view of kind of doing your your pardon craziness. The craziness. I was well. I was headed in that direction, but I thought I'd, I, I wouldn't uh, use a judgmental term. But you've you've had this. You've gone and you've gone your own way. You've had the courage to go your own way. And I and and uh, of course, on this show, we're interested in what in uh, a whole new engineer we call unleashing experiences. So you know, who in your background or what in your background enabled you to kind of do your own thing and go your own way uh, as you've done. Um. You know, it's a little hard to pinpoint one thing. Mm-hmm. I think that even though I didn't realize it uh, in my earlier days, it, it was a, a search for meaning. Uh, I, was, I was searching for the why. Mm. And uh, there was a, a, 
relatively popular TED Talk by uh, uh, Simon Sinek, where he talks about, you know, the importance of why. And I think from an early age, I didn't realize this was important, but but with various employers and various organizations and with my education, uh, it was always trying to find some meaning. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, as a, as a young engineer, as a young man, I would read uh, things like Inc. Magazine, and I would read about the entrepreneurs who would, who would head out and change the world and make money. And they always seemed to be so confident, and they seemed to know exactly what they were doing, and they never made a false step. And I was always asking, well, why are they able to do that? What did they understand mm-hmm. that I don't understand? Uh, and so I think that my interest in... Uh, you know, why engineering is an important career, but also uh, just why we do things, uh, why we're motivated uh, in the way we, we are, uh, led me to be a little skeptical about, uh, you know, the advertised meaning. You know, every organization has some uh, motto, and, uh, but they don't always behave that way. And so I was always uh, very uh, skeptical of people or organizations that didn't, weren't true uh, to what they said their purpose was going to be. Yeah, so that's yeah, and I, and and I think that's an it, you know that's interesting. And, and you you know and you started by saying well, you kind of went to you went off to engineering because that's what your friends were doing, and and uh, you know and you and I both came by it naturally around the kitchen table, you know, talk, listening to dad tell story, you know, the heroic stories of slaying this problem and that problem. So there's a sense in which right. it was natural to go off and do it. But then you, then you, you kind of figure out later, I, I think, you know, and I've, I've, I've thought about this in connection with my own career that the, that the building and the making of those kits and getting the kits to work and, and, um, led to a sense of, of accomplishment and comp and, and a feeling of, well, I can, I can solve this problem. I can do this fairly complex thing. And I, uh, I, I uh, we were talking about the soft side. There's this wonderful video about uh, coding where guys like Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Bill Gates talk about getting their first computer and how how empowering that was in terms of. I, I, and I would use the term unleashing. Unleashing it wasn't it wasn't somebody trusting them. It was them trusting themselves to be capable to to do cool things with a computer. And I think the the making and fixing and 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 getting things to work when when you're a young person can have that same early effect but I, I, I the sense of kind of continuing on okay well why is that meaningful what is the meaning in this i i i i agree that there's a, a sense in which that that kind of keeps it going and keeps it fresh well, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, we got connected was that I came yeah. across your big beacon manifesto and read that, and I said, holy cow, if, if this guy really means what he's writing, he's, you know, he's on to something. I want to talk to this person because uh, either, either he's on to something or he's absolutely crazy, and I want to know which. Well, and we're still trying to figure, figure out the answer to that question, <laughs> both of us, but... Um, um, yes, and, I, and, I've, and we've enjoyed a good relationship. Uh, the Engineering Commons is a, is a partner of a big a media partner of Big Beacon, and, and uh, um, we've had a number of Big Beaconites on, on your show. But uh, before we hop into the show, I, I'm, I'm curious, and, and you have not, have not talked that much about what your, what your, uh, your day job does for your clients. What, is, what does Quarter 20 Engineering do for its clients? 
Well, quarter 20 engineering uh, has been largely dormant since I, I went back to school just because mm. it, when I started, I thought I could work on a Ph.D. degree and work part-time, uh, and that just didn't last for very long. So once I tell you what quarter 20 does, you'll understand why that might be the case. Uh, so I'd come out of a background of doing uh, machine design and had actually, uh, prior to starting quarter 20 engineering, had worked for a small machine shop and uh, wanted to uh, try to build a business uh, doing design of what we call special machinery or, or what is essentially custom manufacturing equipment. Sure. And so uh, it's, a, it's an exciting business because every job is a challenge. Every time you walk into a client's office, you don't know what's coming. They'll hand you a part and they say, well, we need to make a thousand of these a minute or an hour or yeah. whatever the specification may be, or we need a piece of test equipment that does this test, and no one has ever done it before. And, and your mind just gets very excited by the challenge, and you think, oh, what have I done like this before, and what have I seen, and who can I call, and what contacts do I have, and how quickly yeah. can we do it, and how am I going to price it? And it's all very, very exciting. Uh, so at, from an engineering challenge, it's like the best business to be in. Uh, from a business standpoint, it's a very tough business because you rarely get to do the same job twice. Uh, and so you've designed this, you know, this piece of test equipment that works beautifully, and they go, that's great, Jeff. Uh, we don't need any more of those. You, we only need one piece of test equipment. Or you, yep. or you design a, a fixture, and they go, well, we need three fixtures or ten fixtures, and then the job's done, and that job doesn't come along. So unlike a lot of other manufacturing businesses where you get to refine and hone your processes you go along, uh, special machinery, whether you're designing it or whether you're building it, uh, is tough uh, just because you're always having to bid on a new job that you've never seen before, and you hope yeah. that uh, you hope that you don't uh, bid so high uh, that you don't get the job, but you certainly hope you don't bid so low that you do get the job <laughs> because all the <laughs> other bidders were smarter than you were. Yeah. Well, and and yeah, and thanks and thanks for that. And actually, you know, one of the things that struck me, I when I was at Illinois, I I, uh, I was a a coach for the senior design class, which was always industrially sponsored. And so you'd go off to these little shops up in Chicago or somewhere in the Midwest, and and uh, but as you say, there'd be the, these incredible machines that were were just did you know that. Uh, like in in Champagne, there was this cra- this craft plant, and you'd go in and see how they packaged salad dressing. Well, that sounds mundane, and maybe some of our liberal arts listeners are are you know their eyes are rolling and and they're uh, turning off the the show at this moment. But but it, it's just fascinating to see the kinds of a kinds of specialty equipment that gets the job done for all these routine things that we take for granted, and it it's it's right. that kind of thing that actually. I wish we're more transparent to people and maybe, and with some of the shows that are on cable TV now that I think that there is some of that, but it's still, it was, it was eye opening to me to walk in and, and, and just see how all the clever machinery that was there to, to do all the things that we sort of uh, assume can be done. But, um, an awful lot of ingenuity goes into, into that work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I just look at if you, if you've got a salad dressing bottle, you've got a glass bottle and a plastic top, and now you have to think about, it's not so much of a challenge to make one glass bottle and one plastic top that fit each other because you yeah. both are in molds. But now it is, how do you do that? Uh, you know, I don't know what the line rate is, but let's say, yeah. let's say at least 200 a minute. Maybe, maybe they go a lot faster than that. And you're doing it 24-7. Uh, 
Now, now when you're putting out millions of those a year and trying to make sure that you don't have any damaged bottles and that you don't end up with something on the, uh, on the store shelf where the, the shopper picks it up, turns it over to read the label on the back, and all of a sudden salad dressing starts pouring out. Well, yes. I mean, it's just, it, that, it's, it, that it's just remarkable. It's just remark- I remember that plant also had, uh, I think it had some of the macaroni and cheese packaging, and so the little, you know, the, the packages for the, the cheese and then getting the noodles. Anyways, it's just, it's just crazy, crazy um, just the kinds of crazy machines that are out there and what they can do and that somebody there's there's a, a engineer and tech and technologists and technicians that kind of put those things together and got them to work and keep and keep them working at at speed as as you you say and so i'm i'm also curious jeff that you know so uh, you know many practicing engineers kind of you know and there, there's a sense of engineering education is not being aligned with with practice and, and kids go off into into uh, into the world and they'll go off and get the MBA and they'll rise to the ranks as a manager but often it's not all that common for someone that's gone off into practice to come back and get the PhD but you did that and I'm I'm curious what what were some of the the big motives for you in doing that I again I think it goes back to the the why question yeah. I I felt like after uh, a number of years in industry that I had started to Determine some of the whys. Why did it? You know, why did I need thermodynamics? Why was calculus important? Um, why was it important that I knew, you know, a Thevenin's equivalent? These things that you learn in engineering school, and and you're, you you learn it because you're told you should learn this, and then you're sent off to industry. Uh, it, after a while, it, you know, after a few years, it does make sense. You do find applications or reasons that it. it guides your thinking, and these are, are important uh, concepts for you to understand. And I wish so much that when I was a engineering student that somebody had taken the time to try to explain this is why it's going to be important. And, and even if you don't understand now why that's important, at least I think I would have been reassured. It's hard to know as my older self what my younger self really would have felt, but I think I would have been re- reassured that uh, this person is at least telling me that that this can can be beneficial to my career, as opposed to it just being offered as yet one more thing that I have to memorize and regurgitate uh, in order to to get the piece of paper that I'm told that I need to uh, finally advance with my career. Sure. So and and um, and I and I want you to hold some of these thoughts. I, I think we we want to come back. Um, after the break and sort of talk about the thing that really brought us together, this, this whole podcasting thing and the engineering commons podcast that you've uh, been involved with since uh, 2012. Uh, this is big beacon radio with special guest, Jeff Shelton in the next segment, we're going to talk about the engineering commons uh, in particular and podcasting and higher education in general. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. 
David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back and get a copy of the book that is changing higher education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And we're back with Jeff Shelton, host of the Engineering Commons podcast. And before the break, Jeff, you were talking a little bit about getting your PhD and and how that's connected to uh, uh, Simon Sinek's uh, question of of why, but I, I still didn't hear in that exactly the the motive that um, uh, you know usually people are go back for the PhD usually as uh, as the um, to punch their ticket and to, in, to getting inside to be able to teach was that. Was that part of what was uh, in it for you? What, 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 why go back and get a PhD late in your career like yeah. that? Yeah, that was that was much of it. Uh, early in my career, uh, after I'd been in engineering a couple of years, I ended up uh, teaching for uh, Purdue statewide technology program. Uh, they had their engineering technology classes spread out over the state of Indiana, and, and I taught at their Anderson campus for a couple of years. I really enjoyed the teaching. I enjoyed working with the students but felt like, well, I'd worked so hard to get this engineering degree, and I, I wanted to experience what my uh, father had experienced in his engineering career. It just seemed I, I wanted to go back and do um, sort of industrial engineering, and so went back and spent 20 years doing that industrial engineering before I decided that I wanted to come back and teach. So, yeah, specifically, the, the reason for going back to the P, for the Ph.D. was, was – almost solely driven by my desire to get back into the get back into the teaching yeah and and um and as you know i've i've had the pleasure of doing some work with the um the college of Purdue's college of technology now called the polytechnic and they're involved in a a big transformation i think one of our upcoming shows we're going to have uh, Dean Bertolini and uh, uh, Associate Dean Jeff Evans on the the show and talk about some of the cool things that are going on in Purdue. But they, there's quite a network outstate uh, of of technology uh, programs, and and um, so it's interesting you had that uh, that early experience in in doing doing that teaching. But I think the thing that brought us together um, was. Um, uh, your your podcast, the Engineering Commons, uh, at theengineeringcommons.com. dot com, and and I notice you're on your hundredth episode since the start in April, uh, twenty twelve. Uh, please explain to our listeners what what is the Engineering Commons. Okay, well, the Engineering Commons is 
uh, I think a, a forum, it's obviously a podcast, uh, but it's, it's a, a forum for discussing uh, what I guess we would call the more philosophical, more intimate, maybe more soft factors that influence an engineering career. And so there are, are many other places where you can go discuss, hey, what's the, uh, wh- what's the latest bit of technology? What's the cool oscilloscope? What's the cool uh, uh, PLC? What, what kind of piping should I use for this application? But uh, the issues that, that uh, Chris Gamble and I, uh, and Chris Gamble helped found the podcast, uh, when we put it together, we were looking to talk about things that were, I guess, we generally said more philosophical. What exactly what philosophical meant, we weren't sure, but it was those things that weren't being discussed uh, elsewhere. Well, I think that also is one of the things that uh, uh, brought us together, and and uh, I, I think there's this, um, given the times and given the amount of change that we've seen, you know, one of the things that happens in times of great change is you look for better philosophical underpinnings of of what you're doing and and why to go back to the why question and um, you know it was about the same you know in the same kind of time frame 2006 7 or so that uh, uh, the workshop for philosophy and engineering started you know from the question of well why doesn't why doesn't engineering have a a um, uh, branch of philosophy like like uh, and uh, like philosophy of science and of course there's been philosophy of technology but it's really only been recently that philosophers and engineers have turned to what are the intellectual underpinnings the philosophical underpinnings of of engineering as a as a practice and as a profession yeah and i i've told others that i feel like in the podcast that at least in my mind i'm talking to myself at age 26 that, uh, I, you know, you get out of school, you have your engineering degree, you go try to find an engineering job, you get hired as an engineer, you spend the first couple of years just trying to figure out how to do anything. Yeah. And then at some point, you've been an engineer for a couple of years, and you go, you know what? I'm likely to be, unless I move up into management, I'm likely to be an engineer for the rest of my career. What in the world have I gotten myself into? <laughs> uh, lots of problems, lots of pressures on a daily basis. Uh, lots of people, uh, you know, uh, wanting you to do better and faster with less. Uh, just what is it that I've gotten into, and and what is the importance of this? Why does why is my role as an engineer important to my family, uh, my organization, my country, my society? What does this all mean? Um, and so those are the, some of the issues that that we try to address on the on the podcast because frankly we don't hear it being discussed anywhere else. Well, and, I, and that, that raises a good point, you know, and the, the title, I think the title of the show was something like uh, podcasting as continuing higher education. There's a, there is a sense that in many ways, much of what goes on in any field of practice, uh, we're talking about engineering in particular, is, is um, there, there misalignment between the, what's taught in theory and, and, um, and, and what, what is actually practiced and and you know the as you said the issues that come up that have not been mentioned or not been discussed it's like well where where you you, you walk out as you say at age 26 or even younger and and where was it that i was supposed to learn about 
uh, being a great team member or where was it that I was supposed to learn about the economics of um, capitalist enterprise or, or, or a whole host of a whole host of questions like that. Yeah. 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 One of the guests we had on the, on the show was James Trevelyan from the university of Western Australia. Uh, who's, who's written the book, The Making of an Expert Engineer, and he does a lot of research into engineers in industry. Um, and one of, one of his points is that so much of engineering is implicit information. It's not explicit. It's not stuff you can look up in the book. Uh, it's sort of like riding a bike. When you're riding a bike, you, you have the capability to ride it, but try to explain that to someone else. Uh, it's, it's, you learn that experientially. Uh, you do it. And now you understand how to do it, but it's tough to explain. Well, these are the things, so much of engineering uh, involves that. And that is very difficult to teach in the, in the typical classroom. Yeah, I, I, I guess I wonder how much it's, it's difficult or just for, very, for a variety of reasons that we, we choose not to teach it. There's, um, so, for example, we talk about the soft skills, the communication skills. Well, I guess I learned through leadership coaching that you can really do a bang-up job teaching those. Um, and it is experiential, but you can teach it experientially and, and if you respect it. But, um, and you can teach it with a good bit of grounding and, and theory if you borrow from, say, the philosophy of language, a la Fernando Flores and so forth. But, you, but we, choose, we often just choose not to. So I think it's, I, I think it's a bit of a dodge to, to say that we can't. I think, we, I think it's true that we don't. And I think that that's actually a larger failing of higher education in general, that a lot of what's needed now are those kinds of skills. And, and it's not just engineering that's not teaching those. It's like, well, we, we need our, our, our kids need to be able to graduate with their history degrees and figure our way out into a career that no longer is kind of ready-made for them. And, and uh, I guess we could say that knowledge is implicit. But it, we better we better be doing a better job than we're doing uh, of teaching that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and so do you go ahead? You, no, go ahead. Uh, so you have classroom experience. Do you have a vision of how you would integrate that into, you know, the typical classroom uh, syllabus? Well, I I think I I do, I do but I, and I'll come on your show and we can we can talk about that again. Yeah, but you're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna take over as uh, as uh, oh, as questioner on this show. I know that's a more comfortable role for you, but no, I, and I but I think uh, I just was, I was throwing that out there as a provocation and see what see what came back and and we 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 got the uh, we got the in, the interviewer came back. So I want to, uh, um, but I, I just uh, just since you asked, I think. I, I think that there is a there is a, a curriculum to help, uh, and and you and I have talked about this a little bit on your show, and I, I've started to use the term shift skills. Don't call them soft skills, and and it's about the it's about the noticing, listening, questioning, uh, reframing of story uh, in a uh, in a way where people can. Um, be more aware and ask themselves earlier in their careers the big why questions that you were talking about. I think that there is a a curriculum and that and in large part we can borrow a pretty pretty darn good curriculum from a number of places, but one of the places in particular is from the practice of of teaching leadership 
coaching and executive coaching to people that that those practices in the hands of young people at age 25 and so as opposed to 45 or 50 when they finally get into the C-suite and we're willing to spend 500 bucks an hour on a coach for them, that, that those kinds of skills in the hands of young people earlier would be a big would, – would, it's maybe not the whole answer and, and maybe there's still some stuff that's left over that's implicit in the, uh, in the sense that you were talking about earlier. But uh, I think that there's a, there's a way into that curriculum. Yeah, any sure. comments on – that was all assu- my assessment, but I'm just curious how you reacted to what I said. Uh, I think that it's doable, but I think it, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult to revamp a, a, a course, a curriculum, and so you, you would need people that were really dedicated to seeing that done uh, because it's so easy to say, well, we've been teaching the same material for the last 40 years. Why should we completely rip that apart and, and try to reframe it? No, I no, and I agree. It is it is it is tough, and that and it's and it's a it's an enormous cultural challenge. And I I one of the I want to come to your maybe we'll do it a little bit towards the end of the show, but um, um, in the sense where um, you know that you've come to teaching late and and had this experience practice. Well, that's actually I think we should. It's maybe now not a bad time to. So you've had this experience of going into teaching and having the experience of a practicing engineer and some of these cultural mismatches. What's what's that been like for you? Um, so the going back to teaching was not too bad in that I had done a couple years of teaching early yeah. in my career, so I knew kind of what to expect. Uh, quite honestly, the, the biggest shock was going back when I decided I wanted to go back for my Ph.D. I'd been out of school for 20 years. Hadn't worked the calculus problem in 20 years. Yep. Uh, basically, you know, grabbed it, uh, looked up on the on the internet what the current textbook was, and started working calculus problems because I knew I'd have to take you know math entrance exams. Uh, but I I was worried about well, what is teaching like these days? Is it radically different from what I experienced in the uh, I guess it was 1981 when I got out to do as an undergrad. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, uh, chalkboards in some cases were replaced with whiteboards, not always, and maybe there was a there was an overhead uh, projector in order to show PowerPoint slides. But otherwise, the, the, the entire process of teaching had remained relatively unchanged in the 30 years I'd been out of school. Uh, so that was, a, uh, that was a little surprising to me. I thought that, that more technology, that things would have have advanced somewhat more than that. Um, the other thing that, that now that I'm into the teaching is, is just how hard it is to reach a room full of people uh, on anything more than a very superficial basis. You know, I, uh, last semester I had 87 students in a classroom. This semester I've got uh, nearly 50. And so you can, you can talk to the material and you can try to, to uh, uh, you know, cover it in such a way that it's easily understood. But the reality is about a third of the class is kind of lost behind. A third of the class is bored because they're ahead. And you're talking to the middle of the third. And when you stop and try to ask questions, it's a, it's a very long and uh, at times laborious process to, to get them to ask questions, to feel that you'll, you know, to be trusting enough that you're not going to ridicule what the, they're misunderstanding might be, or, or sometimes they have a viewpoint that's very good that I had never uh, come to understand. 
but that just takes time. And all of a sudden, you've, you've gone through your 50 minutes uh, that you're allotted for lecture, and it's time yeah. to go. And you go, I will never get through all the material that I'm supposed to get through if I don't just keep marching through this. And so now being an instructor, I am uh, concerned and sometimes um, just disappointed that I can't do a better job of trying to find some way to deliver understanding to other people. I, I love when, when I sit down and, and they bring in homework problems and I can talk to them one-on-one -on -one and we can really get to the heart of the problem quickly. That's wonderful. I love that. But standing in front of a classroom of 50 people, it's really hard to deliver that, and, and I'm really looking for better means of, of making that happen. Yeah, and and this you know, the whole tyranny of coverage and 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 the and the large large lecture class and how do you inject you know and, and going back to the why questions how do you get the why questions in there to help motivate things is a big challenge we've had some shows on on ways of doing that but I I think it's a it it remains a challenge especially when you're talking about a large uh, research oriented university um, and um, many you know the incentives and the and the and the and the resources are not there for for one-on-one uh, -on -one kind of studio teaching, as as happened at uh, some of the, you know some of the you know we talk a lot about Olin, but then how do we scale that up to a Purdue or an Illinois or or some large uh, public university? Right. So um, you know, I want you know we a reason for in many ways for being here is to talk about podcasting, and so I want to uh, we've got a couple of minutes till we have to take another break, but I guess I'm. Uh, um, you're on your hundredth episode. You started the uh, the Engineering Commons back in 2012. It, it is it, it is a show um, um, to, as you say, have a conversation with yourself at age uh, 23 about some of the um, uh, uh, soft uh, side, uh, the the non technical um, uh, side. Uh, uh, what kinds of uh, episodes resonate most strongly for your readers? Or excuse me, for your listeners. Um, it's it's a little hard to tell uh, exactly. We can we can look at the the listenership and yep. and see which downloads. And from the download numbers, we have an, a rough idea, uh, but they don't vary a great deal. If if something's down ten or fifteen percent, then that's a big a big change for us. Yeah. Uh, so if if we get into something that is obviously uh, just sort of chatter about some. Uh, some outside topic that doesn't that isn't uh, sort of directly career oriented or have a technical aspect, then then the listenership uh, tends to drop down a little bit. Uh, but I'll be honest, I don't really. I worry less about. I mean, I am concerned about whether the listeners will find the episode interesting or not. But I'm basically looking at again if I'm talking to my 26 year old self. Do you need to know this information? Would this be valuable to you? Uh, and I use that as my guide in deciding whether whether we need to pursue that topic. Well, and so then, what kinds of what kinds of episodes have been most interesting to your twenty yourself as uh, the twenty six year old uh, listener? Who what have been some of the the uh, episodes that have kind of um, been most interesting for you to present to your listeners? Just uh, as examples. Sure, sure. Well, we had when you were on. We had a, a the first time we had a great discussion about uh, engineering education, and uh, you told me about the Grinter report. Uh, 
which sort of revolutionized engineering education in, in the uh, 1950s. And I, I didn't, you know, this aspect that engineering education was not a constant, uh, that it was continually changing, that mm. uh, evolving uh, to meet the needs of the times, I, I found that fascinating. Um, we, we had on uh, James Trevelyan, uh, who I mentioned earlier yep. uh, for a couple of episodes, and, and he, in, in his first appearance, talked about the value of an engineer. And I had never really thought about this. Why does an organization pay such good money to engineers? They're, everyone's told, well, go be an engineer because you'll make a good salary. But why? What is it that engineers, I mean, yes, they tend to be bright people, but other than that, what is it? And he talked about uh, the, the importance of engineers to the organization in that they reduced risk. Their primary goal there was to reduce risk. So they were either providing information about uh, which materials to use or which process to use or how to assemble a, a product or how to make the product more reliable, but it was, it was risk reduction to the organization. And this was a, this was a viewpoint that I had never heard for before. This, was, uh, this is a great why insight for me. Mm-hmm. Um, another episode we did was on empathy. Uh, the, we all talk about the, the importance of needing to be empathetic with our coworkers and with our clients, our customers, uh, but there are some uh, studies, research studies, that seem to indicate that engineers have less empathy than other professions. Why is this? Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, there, there's also, we, we talked about an article, or a research uh, article out of uh, Case Western Reserve University that said that uh, firing up the neural network that we use for empathy causes our analytic abilities to be suppressed. So is is the fact that we're dealing analytically all day uh, suppressing our ability to be empathetic, or is it our general nature, innate nature, to be le- less empathetic that's driven us to engineering? Uh, again, I don't know, but these are these are certainly issues and aspects of the engineering career that that uh, I was interested in when when it was presented to me. No, it's great stuff, and and thanks for uh, sharing those. And I think I think we. You know, we probably need to take a little break right now, but I, I think we want to come back after the break and, and talk a little bit more about the podcast in particular, but also talk about it in general. To, to what extent are the lines between the kinds of things that we're doing on this show and you do on your show and and what it means to be an educator in general kind of blurring? And I think we want to pick up with that after the break. This is Big Beacon Radio with a special guest, uh, uh, Jeff Shelton, host of TheEngineeringCommons.com. And in the next episode, we'll, we'll pick up on, on those points of, of uh, how does this all connect to higher education and how ed- higher education is changing. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com 
or browse the Three Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back. Get the coaching and deep faculty development and training you need to help transform higher education at at your institution at 3joy.com. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Jeff Shelton. I'm Dave Goldberg. And in the last segment, Jeff, we were talking uh, talking a little bit about the engineering commons and some of the things that you've... um, uh, uh, some of the some of the kinds of episodes you've had that were interesting to you, I guess. In looking back at at uh, what now uh, you're you'll pretty you'll hit your it was 2012. So what's your fourth fourth birthday here uh, coming up? Um, yep. Uh, in in April. So as you look back, what are some of the big lessons of doing the podcast for for you personally and professionally? Um. Well, the the so I, the nicest thing is that we occasionally not not we don't get a lot of feedback, uh, we don't get a lot of emails uh, sent our way, but occasionally we get one that says, "Hey, we, listening to the podcast, really enjoyed it. Uh, you you stoked my uh, excitement for engineering. I've gone back to school to get an engineering career, or I was about ready to give up in engineering college, but because I listened to you guys talk about." Uh, engineering career and what it means to you, I've decided to, to move forward, uh, and it's been beneficial. Uh, or, you know, I, I, I needed something to listen to, to, uh, to uh, that was related to engineering, and, and we really enjoy your show. So uh, the biggest thing that, that has been a lesson to me is I didn't know that was out there, and it's, it's always, that's, that's what motivates, motivates us to keep uh, working forward on the show, is, is that we get those uh, occasional letters that... that uh, give us some indication that there our our work has some meaning to other people. You know, and it is nice when that happens and, and we get some of that on on this show as well, but I, I it raises a good point. It, it, engineering, I think as you said, the, isn't taught that much differently and it's uh, and and we were talking about the sense of empathy versus analytical nature and and uh, engineering's taught with a lot of challenge. So there are a lot of a lot of hard work, a lot of long hours, a lot of tough problems, uh, not so much support to kind of make it through those things. And it's a bit of a survival of the fittest. And so that places like the Engineering Commons and Big Beacon Radio can uh, can sometimes offer support um, to people who are kind of not sure or think that they're alone. Um, I think that that's a, that's, a, that's a really important role that, that uh, these things can play. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, um, I, go, go, ahead. go ahead. I was going to say, thinking about it, I really haven't described what the format is. So, uh, most people who are familiar with your show, 
would be familiar with the idea of podcasting, where other people may have downloaded other podcasts that are very popular. So our format is we are not personality-driven, we're not event-driven, we're, we're pretty much topic-driven. And so uh, I'm one of the hosts. We have three other engineers as co-hosts, uh, Adam, Brian, and Carmen. And so yep. the four of us get on each, uh, every other week, bi-weekly, invite, uh, usually invite a guest on uh, to talk about some topic. And so we will spend somewhere between, usually between an hour and an hour and a half covering some topic. Uh, and usually, you know, we, we wander off the uh, beaten path for a while and, and uh, have a few laughs and tell a few jokes and, and uh, uh, share a few uh, stories of our careers. Uh, but the idea is that uh, listeners who come to that are going to basically be able to sit in on, at the lunch table with four engineers talking about a topic or five engineers if we have a guest. So uh, this is something that not everybody gets a chance to do. If you go to an engineering college, you don't get to talk with engineers. You get to talk with the engineering professors. So th- this is an opportunity either to sit in uh, into this conversation and, and hear what's going on, or, or if you're not related, you, know, you don't have any engineering experience, just to see what the thought process is uh, for a group of engineers as they talk about a topic. Well, and I think I think that's a you know I think that's a really important thing, especially as an engineer is developing early in their career to be able to do that. And and sometimes, as uh, in small shops, uh, an engineer can be fairly isolated, um, not have lots of other engineers to talk to. In a larger shop, uh, you'll ha- you'll be surrounded by engineers, and that that lunchtime discussion will come naturally. But but certainly, as you're saying. Engineers in engineering school don't usually have that kind of opportunity to sort of talk about the reality of practice and 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 what it means to be a pra- uh, be a practitioner. Sure. What else? And and we're going to go on to sort of the larger lessons of this for higher education in a minute. But what else should what else should our listeners know about the the show in particular? Well, I think it's one of those things where you have to try it and see if you like it. And so uh, as I, I look at some of the uh, other uh, forums on the Internet, you can go and look, and there's some conversation about engineering podcasts. Uh, and for a lot of people, an episode or two of our general discussion of philosophical issues is just not their cup of tea. They try sure. it once or twice, and they go, ah, no thanks. And there are some very, very good uh, other um, podcasts, engineering-related, they tend to be mostly about electronics. Mm. Uh, Chris, Chris Gamble and Dave Jones, uh, Chris Gamble being my, my founding co-host, he's moved on to other things, uh, but they have one called the Amp Hour, where weekly they talk about electronics. Uh, there's Embedded, which talks about embedded electronics done by Alicia and Chris White. Uh, Spark Gap, uh, I think Carl and Corey, although I don't know the last names, are the hosts for that. That, again, is electronics. Uh, there's one pragmatic that uh, by John Chigi that talks about uh, various technical topics, not necessarily engineering. Uh, Anthony Fasano has a couple of uh, podcasts out there, the Civil Engineering Podcast, and I think it's the Engineering Career Podcast. So there are other podcasts out there, I, and they sort of sometimes wander in the philosophical area, but I don't think they hit these issues quite as frequently as we do. Sure. Well, and one of the interest, you know, given that, 
fairly long list, you know, that in, in times past, the, there wasn't this kind of media. There wasn't, there wasn't this long tail kind of media where people were talking about topics that previously were too obscure to, well, too obscure to what? To attract uh, sufficient funding and advertising to devote large-scale media <laughs> to it. And so there's a sense that, uh, that for, for much less we can uh, put out information in, in ways that uh, are valuable to a much, much more diverse uh, listening audience than before is one of the, uh, one of the things that's going on here. And, and that's actually, there's common cause or common, uh, um, common f- uh, forcing function in that with higher education in general. So, you know, we've seen the rise of MOOCs, um, Massive open online courses and people putting whole courses online, all the lectures, all the all the reading materials, all the curricular stuff. And, and so this idea of having very specialized kinds of coursework and content seems to be a common theme running between um, uh, podcasting and higher education, um, both. What's your, what's your take as you look at this landscape? Well, the the uh, the podcast or the MOOC, the MOOC, I, I suppose to a certain extent, you're trying to get a grade, so maybe it's somewhat uh, challenging. But the podcast is educational, hopefully, if done right. But it's not very threatening. You don't get a grade. You're just you're you li- you're listening and you're learning. And if you want, in many cases, you can uh, send an email or or ask a question, uh, get a comment. Uh, Dave Jones has a has a video blog, uh, the EEV blog, where he talks about electrical engineering and gives tutorials and that sort of thing. Has a forum; people are able to participate online. There's no; th- they're learning, yes, just like they would in the classroom. But but they're not threatened. They don't have to pay tuition. They don't have to worry about they got an, a B plus instead of an A minus. Uh, and so the the question is, how long is that certificate considered to be more valuable than the the learning that you might uh, gather through uh, less conventional means. Well, and and that's right. And even even on the MOOCs, so many of them are out there and uh, people are taking them not for credit, just kind of taking them for for information. So in that sense, the the uh, the not having extrinsic motivation or tying to tying to a grade is uh, can can also be um, um, part of it. It just seems to me that there's a there's a kind of blurring um between uh, well and you you talked about wanting to be a writer so you instead of a writer you've become a become a broadcaster and and you have an interest in education but it seems like um advocacy and journalism and and education are um are blurring in a sense and one of the things i valued when i was teaching um was teaching as learning so there's a sense um and I, I've, I noticed this after doing this show for a while that one of the things I really enjoy about the, doing this show is the learning that I, I get to do as as the host of the show and, and just having this kind of extended conversation with people about about things that matter. How does that is uh, how's what's your take on that? How's that is is that something that uh, is part of the attraction of of being a podcaster for you? Yeah, uh, you mentioned advertising before, and you know, a podcast as small as ours gets no advertising. Uh, you know, we're not nearly big enough to to draw advertisers. So it's it's a labor of love. Uh, we do it because we like it. We think it, it 
serves a need that's not otherwise met in the engineering community. Um, and yes, I do get to learn a lot. And, and talking with people, you know, like yourself, like Professor Trevelyan, uh, uh, other guests that have brought interesting viewpoints, it's shaping my interpretation of what it means to be an engineer, which allows me to be more effective in speaking to others uh, about the benefits of an engineering career. Yeah, we we only, we just have about a minute or so left. Uh, you know, um, uh, in terms of. Um, in terms of uh, doing this, uh, doing the podcast and the kinds of things that we're talking about, what else would you like to share with our listeners before we be, before we sign off? Well, if they have a if they have an interested in if they have an interest in listening to our show, they can find it at uh, theengineeringcommons.com. Uh, on Twitter, we have a uh, Twitter feed at tec the, for the engineering commons tec underscore podcast. Sorry, TEC underscore podcast. Um, and uh, we'd, in, we'd encourage you to, to uh, give it a try, see if you like it. If you don't, we're not offended. If you do, welcome aboard. Well, Jeff, thanks for, thanks for joining us. It was, it was a real pleasure to have you on, on the show. Uh, thank you, Dave, for the opportunity. You bet. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Jeff Shelton, uh, and listen to theengineeringcommons.com and help us transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week. We're going to have a a conversation with uh, some students in an organization called Students for a Whole New Education. Same time, same channel. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.